Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Everybody, shalom, welcome, welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. It is wonderful to see you all. We are starting Elul. Everything is good. Everything is new. Tehillah and I are celebrating 21 years together today. That's why we started off the fellowship with a little bit of nostalgia from our our wedding day, exactly today, 21 years ago. Um, we had a really special Shabbat on the farm. I mean, every Shabbat is special on the farm. I try to never leave. I, people think that I'm weird. I never want to leave the farm for Shabbat. I just love Shabbat on the farm so much. And before every Shabbat, I have all the prayer requests of the fellowship and I take time and try to give my heart to each one of them and teach of the families and the people that need our prayers. And I know that everyone needs prayers, but then there's so many people in our fellowship that take the time and send them to us. And it's something that's so special, something I've never experienced before. And until we created this fellowship, it was just, I've never had such a soul connection and such a, such a profound, loving way to be connected, to really pray for each other and to be connected through this land. And just thank you, Ardell, for taking the time and getting those to me every week. It just means so much to me. And I know that it means so much to the people of the fellowship. And I mean, over Shabbat, we had Sayeret Golani um, in the farm. And that's one of the most elite commando units in the IDF. They're the elite commando unit of the Golani Brigade. They're in the top 1% of soldiers in the world. And they all came to prayers Friday night. And you can see some were more comfortable with prayers than others, but all of them came. And my son Akiva, who was 16, was sitting next to me. And he looked over and was like, Abba, I want to be like that guy. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you're going to have to work pretty hard to be like that guy. And I just love exposing him to the best of the best in Israel and just to see this. You know, there's like so much negativity around Israel all the time. The news is constantly promoting all the negativity. But then when you like look underneath the surface, this like next generation of warriors is so connected and they're so good and they're so pure and they're so competent and they're so confident and they're so courageous. It's just another generation is rising up in Israel that the world isn't even ready for yet. And they love the farm. I mean, everyone loves the farm. And at the same time, we had this such a unique, you know, elite commando unit on the farm. We also had the Masoud family. And this here is a picture of Harel Masoud. And we all called him Masoud. And he lived and volunteered on the farm uh, for a few months before entering into the IDF. And that was really the first time I really got to know the mountain Jews in Israel. I mean, there was about maybe a dozen of them that were volunteering on the farm at that time. And, you know, if you had to draw a picture of what David's men looked like that joined him in the mountains of Zeke, these sort of like misfits that didn't really fit into Israeli society, and they were just lovers of God and zealous for the Torah and loved the land and were after David, loyal to the king. If you had to picture that in your mind, I think that that's the image that would be conjured up is someone like Har El Masoud. And... When he got out of the army, he ventured off to help start a new farm in Samaria. And two months ago, he was having hummus in a restaurant. He was gunned down by terrorists and murdered. And, you know, he loved the farm. And his family wanted to come and spend Shabbat and see what he was always talking about. And so on Shabbat, we got to pray together with that family. And they, they stayed with us in our guest house. And we learned a little bit together after davening. And that was also just so special. And... It felt like it was healing. I mean, they actually just sent me a WhatsApp literally seconds before the fellowship went live with just how important the Shabbat was for them and how meaningful it was for them. And, you know, they say, you know, we don't have to look for heavens up on earth when see their heavens down on, down on earth. And it was just 
obviously a very blessed Shabbat. And we're just so blessed to be building a center together. Just that's so healing. That's filled with prayer and hope and peace. And it's just bringing so much light into the world. And, you know, I talk about the fellowship all the time. I think it's the thing that I'm most proud of in my life. And I know that pride is not usually a good thing, but this is just the pride that I have around the fellowship is a holy pride. And someone asked me over Shabbat, you know, who's the inspiration here? You know, and I said, I think that if you were to ask different members of the fellowship, they would say different people are the different inspirations for the fellowship. And maybe even sometimes it changes. Like, no, but if you had to like be pressed to pick one biblical character, that's the inspiration, who would it be? I said, ah, it's really hard. I mean, I, everyone's going to have a different answer. I imagine and sometimes we focus on different characters. And for that week, that character is the inspiration. He says, no, but if you had to encapsulate the fellowship in one character. And so I was pushed to the corner. I said, I think it's Abraham. For me, I think that's the answer. That's my answer. You know, it's um, this the, the one man who sort of like the father of all the believers and all the promises that were promised. They weren't promised to the Jews. They were promised to Abraham and his offspring. And I just want to show you this amazing picture. And it's a picture of Rabbi Yaakov Israel Herzog, who has now established the first Jewish center, the Jewish Chabad house in Saudi Arabia. That's happening. That just happened last week. Now, that's never happened before. And I know that the media is constantly projecting negativity in world war, and there's going to be another pandemic, and there's other bad things that are on the horizon, and there's fires in Maui, and who knows what's going on, and bad, 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 negative, negative, negative. But if you just watch underneath all of that, something is happening that is so biblical and so promised and so remarkable that you can't stand but just be like struck with awe. And I believe that this fellowship is a window into the future. I mean, really understanding what it is to be a part of the promises of Abraham. From the Nile to the Euphrates to Saudi Arabia, that was the promise to Abraham and his children. It was a promise that was beyond politics. It was a promise that was beyond religion. And it's a movement in the world that's trying to fix what's broken and strive toward God and strive toward the good. And just keep your eyes open because the media is programmed to share bad news. That's their business. They are a business of sharing bad news. But good news is everywhere. And especially if you see the world through the prism of the Bible, you just look for it and you'll see that God's plan is unfolding underneath all the noise. And we are closer to redemption than ever before. And so all of us live on a certain level and the world exists on a certain level. And, you know, each person where they are and all of us want to ascend to the next level in our life. And the same is true for all of humanity. But you can't advance to the highest level or the next level until you learn the lesson that the current level is trying to teach you. And so the end of time is when humanity starts a new epoch in history. And we learn the lessons of the past and we take humanity to the next phase. And that's what Israel represents. And that's what we're all striving for here is really just to take our lives to the next phase, to learn the lessons that we need to learn from the phase that we're in now, and then collectively take a giant step forward with a new era. And, you know, with all the blunders and all the mistakes and just so much has been exposed over the last few years, so many lies and so much corruption, the world is really being refined and the falsehood is finally being exposed. And all of us are really close to seeing the promises of Abraham come to pass. And so with our father Abraham in mind and thinking about how happy he must be watching this fellowship come together from around the world, Let's um, lift a prayer up together and start the fellowship. 
It's the month of Elul, and this is a very special time. Hashem, Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King. It's the first Sunday of Elul, the first Sunday of the week, and our fellowship is gathered here once again to seek you as you seek us out in the fields. We're looking towards this new year, preparing for what you have in store for our lives. Help us grow in this month of Rachamim, in this month of this womb that you've created for us. Please let us feel the space you've created to nourish us, to guard us, to give us everything we need to grow into who you need us to be this year. This is our time. As we start this new month, as we start this new week, we start it with you on our mind, with you on our heart, and with the Torah as our guide. Help us bridge the gap between our heads and our hearts. And like your flock, let us hear your whistle calling us toward you and on the path you've planned for us. Bless everyone in this fellowship. Bless everyone that I see now. Bless everyone that's tuned in live. Bless everyone that's going to be tuning in later. Bless them. Bless their families. Let the sound of the shofar, this Elul, wake us up and give us the desire to climb higher, to become better, to grow stronger, and to grow closer to you. May we hear the sound of the shofar calling us back to Yerushalayim soon in our days. Amen. And so um, before I hand over the fellowship to the star of the show, I am going to invite Ari Abramowitz to join us first. And so um, he's broadcasting from the farm. The farm has been experiencing some unique challenges lately with our electrical infrastructure as our solar panels kicked in right as the sun starts to go down. We're always kind of figuring it out. So I hope that Ari can join us. But if he can, Ari, I hope that you're there and I'm passing it off to you unless you're not there. And then if you're not there, I'm taking it right back. So Ari, <laughs> are you with us? I am right here. And uh, miraculously, we have electricity at the farm. This was uh, probably one of our most difficult Shabbats that we've had at the farm, as Jeremy was alluding to. Uh, you know, by the end of Shabbat, we were drenched in sweat. We had huge periods of time during the craziest heat wave. Of course, it always happens then that we had no electricity, no air conditioning, no fans, nothing. But I sort of enjoyed that in some perverse sort of way, because it's like suffering for the settling of the land of Israel. Sometimes I feel like we're getting soft out here. But anyways, we do have electricity. So I'm here with you and I'm happy to say that. And I'm happy to see all of your faces. And I'm happy, Jeremy. Just, um, But that's OK, because uh, I'm going to wish all of you a happy anniversary to Jeremy and Tehillah. Jeremy, happy anniversary. Can you hear me? Happy anniversary. Yes. And uh, bring me much. back to uh, to your wedding and the week that you and I spent together beforehand building and preparing your caravan for your married life. Do you remember that? How could I Can forget you hear that? me? That was a very right. exciting time. Yes, yes. Also nice haircut. Good job. You look sharp. Anyways, uh, as Jeremy said, this week we did have uh, some very special guests at the farm. And now over the years, I've, I've seen more and more like our farm tends to be like a magnet for holiness, not only from the Jewish people, but for the nations of the world. We've had uh, the great honor and joy of hosting many of you, our fellowship family. We've had many of you here at the farm, and I certainly hope we'll be able to host all of you someday. But this week, we had something called a tish. 
here at the farm. Jeremy, did you get to be at any of the Tish at all? You know, I didn't even know that that Tish was happening. I just, I miss all the fun stuff. Yeah, okay, so it was, it was pretty wild. It's a crazy thing to have happen at your own farm and you don't even know what's happening. But anyways, it was at the farm and there were Hasidim, you know, what a lot of people label as ultra-Orthodox, but of course, when you're in the fold, when it's your own nation, the strands and shades are so different and varied that to call them ultra-Orthodox is missing the whole picture. But anyways, they came together to, uh, uh, during a tish. And what's a tish? They come together to celebrate either the completion of a certain tractate of learning, for example, or even just to celebrate existence itself with learning or praying or singing or eating. And, and they gather around their Rebbe. Now, they don't only gather around to hear his teachings, but to study his movement. It's inspiring and it's super cool seeing the reverence that they have for their Rebbe. And it makes me, sometimes it makes me want more of that. You know, want more of that. And it's a nice refreshing change from the West where they do, they idolize like this people of vapid, ridiculous emptiness in Hollywood. This they do for their Rebbe that teaches them Torah, the word of God. The strain of, of the Torah, the brand, the flavor that they're, that makes their soul dance. Anyways, so, uh, you know, I'll tell you that this week we had, we have a lot of Biala Hasidim, the Biala sect of Hasidim, and the Biala Rebbe himself came to the farm, not last week, this is a while ago, and I gave him a ride in my ranger, in my tractor own, and he sat by the pool. If you understood what a big deal the Biala Rebbe is, it's like, what? It's like, imagine... Lahavdi, like Michael Jackson or something, you know, coming and sit and you giving him a ride in your tractor and he sits by your pool. That's a really bad analogy, but you see where I'm going. He's like, man, the Slonema Rebbe came with the Slonema Yeshiva. And this week, I just, I'm still trying to get over the fact, Ari, that you compared the Biala Rebbe to Michael Jackson. Like, that's just ridiculous. Right. That's ridiculous. It's a bad comparison, but at least it's something new. I guarantee you, nobody has ever done that before. So just for the no, but let me just, of so it, it to make it me. like somehow a little bit real for people to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with that Rebbe, you would probably need a half a year in advance to schedule. Not a, a half a year. That's but yeah, it could be weeks, months. I think months. Okay. All right. Fine. Either way, Most it's a big deal. Anyways, uh, and so this week, Thursday night, we had the great, revered, and universally respected Amshan of a Rebbe. He showed up to the farm. I told my friends from the Biala uh, settlement nearby, the Biala Hasidim, that the Amshan of a Rebbe was coming, and they were like passing out, and it's not even their Rebbe. It's the Amshan of a Rebbe. And so he came, and uh, he came to the farm, and like Jeremy said, you have to wait weeks, months, who knows to how long to see this guy, just for advice or for guidance or for a bracha, you know, a blessing from, from any of these Rebbe's. And they all come to the farm, our little farm on our mountaintop. Why? I have no idea. And the fact is, you know, it, it's, it's no recruitment efforts on our part. It's of their own volition. It just strengthens my feeling that Hashem is doing something very special at our farm. You know, Hashem is bringing a certain healing and unity and light to the farm that is a magnet for these Rebbe's, for these holy people around the world. And uh, my eyes are seeing it, but I'll readily admit that my brain doesn't really understand what's happening. Anyways, I wanted to share a little video that I took 
even though, you know, I pull out my, my smartphone and they look at me videoing their Rebbe and it's not, it's hard for them to get mad at me because it's my farm that I'm hosting them at. But these people don't even have smartphones. None of them have smartphones. They all have those old phone numbers on it. And you can look at them or you could deeply admire and respect them, which is what I do. Anyone that pulls out a phone like that is automatically my Rebbe. These smartphones are, 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 are bad news. But anyways, so, um, so here's a video that I took. And these are the students around him have been his Hasidim, not just his students. His like disciples have been around him all night. And despite their exhaustion of being up all night, this is like 6.30 in the morning, they're hanging on every word that emerges from the mouth of their Rebbe. Check this out. I just videoed this two days ago. It's like they're just watching him as he's downloading from above. That's how I want you guys to look at me. During this fellowship, I want you guys to look at me. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, but it's really surprising. You know, I never saw that video. And imagine that that was Thursday night. I think it was Thursday that they came. And then the next Friday night, we had the elite Sayeret Golani Brigade in the same synagogue, House of Prayer. Like, what a range! What is our farm is somehow able to like hold? It's really remarkable. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Anyways, at Shana's suggestion. I actually brought down Shiloh to see the Rebbe and just to be near him. Um, and uh, so here's a picture of Shiloh posing with the Rebbe. It's I had to show you. So. <laughs> so that's Shiloh posing with the Rebbe. Um, someday the Rebbe will be very honored to have been in a picture with Shiloh. Anyways, um, so the option of a sect of the Siddham, like all the other sects, they really revere their Rebbe. Um, you know, just to give you a little perspective, here's a video of the Rebbe dancing at a wedding of one of his Hasidim, which I guarantee you was the highlight of this Hasid, of, of, his, of, the, of the young groom's life. Now, the reason Jeremy's like, what are you doing all of this for, Ari? We get it. We have the option of a chassid and the Rebbe, like, why are you doing this? And the reason I'm showing you these pictures is to, is, is to compare the simple-hearted faith of these chassidim with other guests that we had for Shabbat that, uh, that uh, Jeremy just told you about. You know, I'm talking about the parents of Harel Masood. You saw his picture earlier, Harel Masood, really like this sweet, loving shepherd that loves the land of Israel. His life was dedicated to settling the land of Israel. And, uh, and he was really at our farm a lot. And, and uh, we, I had the honor of meeting him and knowing him. Anyways, so his parents, as Jeremy said, came to the farm and we got to know them. And uh, I just picture, you know, with the overwhelming, crippling fierceness with which I love Shiloh and he's a year and a half, you know, picture 20 years 
seeing your boy grow and then he's ripped away from you in such a horrific way. I can't even imagine what they've been through. And it's still raw. It's still real. It's like just weeks ago that this happened. Anyways, what I saw in these two seemingly different groups was a human manifestation that was very different, but at the same time, it was a manifestation of the embodiment of a verse in this week's Torah portion, which is perhaps one of the most important directives in the entire Torah. So what is that? It's from this week's Parsha Torah portion, chapter 18, verse 3, right? It says, Tamim im Hashem alokecha. You shall be wholehearted with Hashem your God. Now, of course, this is a translation. Some people define tamim as wholehearted. Some say simple. Some say it's just pure. But to me, it's really all of these words put together. It's, it's the faith that I see manifested in Israel, in Jerusalem, the faith that's demanded of us here at our farm. I don't know that we always rise to the occasion, but we try to the, every single day, really. And, and my friends, it's the faith that so many of you, I see it in you. I see it in your hearts. I'm, I'm continue to be inspired by that simple faith that you have when we see each other in these fellowships and our fellowship connections. If you missed the one last week, I mean, it showed up in every single one of our fellowship connections that we had last week, all of the interactions that we had that I'm blessed to have with you. Now, as all of you know, you know I'm saying the special Kaddish prayer. It's the prayer for the, for the dead. And again, we don't talk about death during this at all. We talk about sanctifying Hashem's name. And I'm saying it for my father. You say it for, uh, for a full year after a parent passes away. And so there I stood in our house of prayer, side by side, saying the prayer in perfect synchronicity with the father of Harel, who's praying the same prayer for the dead for his son. The difference is that I'm saying the prayer for my father, as the world should be. You know, a son mourning for his father. And he's saying the prayer for his son, as one could legitimately feel is not the way things should go. That's not the way things should be in the world. A father should not have to bury his son. And you'd think that this would be the last thing a bereaved father would be doing, sanctifying and praising God's name in the, week, in, in the wake of such a devastating loss like that. But there he was by my side, shoulder by shoulder, and we were saying the prayer for the dead together, and he had such simple faith. And this is the time really to reflect on this in the month of Elul as we prepare for the high holidays, because that's the very heart of the work we're supposed to be doing here. In less than a month, we'll be celebrating Rosh Hashanah, in which we accept the yoke of heaven and the coronation of Hashem as king of the world, as king in our hearts. And what does that mean? How do we, how do we fear our king? How do we love our king. I'm going to talk about this more next week, the idea of what it really means to fear Hashem. But how do we do this? By accepting his kingship with simple hearts, with hearts of faith and hearts of love, by, by accepting and even embracing all of the circumstances of our lives, no matter how painful or difficult they may be. And we all have something in our lives. Everybody has something in our lives that's hard to accept. We each have questions and we all have doubts and fears. It's human. But what does Hashem tell us in the verses leading up to this verse? The verse that says to be simple, pure hearted with God. What does it tell us? Verses 10 to 12, chapter 18. It doesn't say that here. Let no one be found among you who consigns a son or a daughter to the fire 
or who's an augur, a soothsayer, a diviner, or a sorcerer, one who casts spells, or one who consults ghosts or familiar spirits, or one who inquires of the dead. For anyone who does such a thing is abhorrent to Hashem, and it's because of these abhorrent things that Hashem, your God, is dispossessing them from before you. Meaning it's because of these things that they were thrown out of the land of Israel. Hashem doesn't want us giving into this very human impulse of seeking to take control of things. That's what idolatry is. That's why they were thrown out of the land. That's why we were thrown out. The land of Israel is a land of faith. Because, you know, when we seek to take control of things, what are we really doing? Like, what are we essentially, we're, we're essentially taking the place of Hashem and usurping his throne and calling the shots of the world. This is how things should be. And this is how things shouldn't be. And this is how we're going to control the fertility. And this is how we're going to control. We're controlling things. Or we have the illusion, of course, obviously, of controlling things because it's impossible to control things. And trying to do so is the opposite of what Hashem wants. Hashem wants our hearts. He wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship. And that relationship is most beautifully manifested in wholeheartedly walking before him, knowing, knowing that while sometimes it's unbearably painful, everything he does in our lives is an act of love for us and for our own good. And so what does Rashi say? My, my friend Michael says this is the favorite Rashi he has in the entire Torah. Rashi says about that verse, thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. He says, walk before him wholeheartedly. Put thy hope in him. And do not attempt to investigate the future. But whatever it may be that comes upon you, accept it wholeheartedly. And then you shall be known as, as part of his portion. You will be the portion of Hashem when you accept with simple, whole hearts what happens to you in your life. And so, my friends, I want to bless us all that we're able to really simplify to be pure and wholehearted with Hashem, to lovingly accept what he does in our lives. And with that acceptance, with that acceptance, may we merit to enter the upcoming year with a Shana Tova Umetuka, with a good and a sweet year. And we've taught it before. Why do we say good and sweet? Because as we know, everything is good. Everything is good, but not everything is sweet. Not everything is a revealed good. But by accepting everything, in our lives that happens to us as good. May we all merit to have everything not only be good, but to be actually revealed, to be sweet goodness as well. I'm praying for all of you. I see your prayers. I see what you're going through. And you all deserve sweet goodness in this world. And we love you guys so much. So keep in touch with us. I'm so eager for next week to be with you again. Shalom, shalom. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. That was really beautiful to be Tamim. You know, Tahila and I were celebrating our 21st anniversary, August 20th, the 12th of Elul. That's the Hebrew calendar. I like to celebrate both days. That was like the day that I won the lottery. That's what someone in the chat said. Exactly. That was, that was the best day ever for me. That was the best choice. Good move. Go, Jeremy. Win. <laughs> and so, um, but before I introduce Tahila, I want to just share this one story. A friend of mine, a member of the fellowship, sent it to me. And it just touched my heart. And how could I feel? It's like days before my anniversary, someone is sending me this story. So I just want to share it with you. And then I started thinking that's really such a beautiful thing that our, our network, our fellowship, it's like 
one organism. It's like one brain and I'm being sent an idea and that idea I'm sharing and that's inspiring other ideas. Then it comes back around in a prayer and it's like a movement. It's so special. But here is the story. It really touched my heart and it's perfect for all of the soon to be married and the long that have been married. And here it goes. My parents were married for 55 years. One morning, my mom was going downstairs to make dad breakfast. She had a heart attack and fell. My father picked her up as best he could and almost dragged her into the truck. At full speed, without respecting traffic lights, he drove her to the hospital when he arrived. Unfortunately, she was no longer with us. During the funeral, my father did not speak. His gaze was lost. He hardly cried. That night, his children joined him in an atmosphere of pain and nostalgia. We remember beautiful anecdotes. And he asked my brother, a theologian, to tell him where mom would be at that moment. My brother began to talk about life after death and guesses as how to and where she would be. My father listened carefully, suddenly asked us to take him to the cemetery. Dad, we replied, it's 11 at night. We can't go to the cemetery right now. He raised his voice and with a glazed look, he said, don't argue with me. Please don't argue with the man who just lost his wife of 55 years. There was a moment of respectful silence. We didn't argue anymore. We went to the cemetery. We asked the night watchman for permission. With a flashlight, we reached the tomb. My father caressed her, prayed, and told his children who watched the scene. It was 55 years, you know. No one can talk about true love if they have no idea what it's like to share life with a woman. He paused and wiped his face. She and I, we were together in the crisis. I changed jobs, he continued. We packed up and we sold the house and moved out of town. We shared the joy of seeing our children finish their careers. We mourned the departure of loved ones side by side. We prayed together in the waiting room of some hospitals. We supported each other in pain. We hug each other every Christmas and we forgive for our mistakes. Children, now it's gone. And I'm happy. Do you know why? Because she left before me. She didn't have to go through the agony and pain of burying me of being left alone after my departure. I will be the one to go through that. And I thank God. I love her so much and I wouldn't have liked her to suffer. When my father finished speaking, my brothers and I had tears streaming down our faces. We hugged him and he comforted us. It's okay, we can go home. It's been a good day. And that night I understood what true love is. And that's the end of what I was sent. And you know, what hit me about that story is how the secular world preaches the exact opposite. These ridiculous parades and flags as this some kind of picture of love, of free love and excitement and celebrating lust and impulses. And Hollywood love is just so shallow. And that's what maybe why all the Hollywood idols end up strung out and alone and depressed. And it's like true love is something that takes a lifetime of commitment to experience. It's like anything real. It takes time and effort and being committed it takes the hard times together, takes the good times, the fun times, and the sad times, but commitment. It's like our world is moving away from commitment, and in that, it's moving away from love. And commitment to each other is the ingredient that creates the opportunity for true love to exist. And I just think that that's a beautiful idea. And one day, if Tehillah lets me write a book about marriage, I might call it The Long Road to Love. Because I think in the truest sense possible, you cannot experience true love. There is no shortcut to it. And so with that introduction, I want to invite Tahila Gimpel here to share with us 21 years. It's not 55 yet, 
but we're getting there. And so here is Tahila and um, happy anniversary. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you, Jeremy. Happy anniversary. Hey, everybody. It's great to be live with you guys. Hope everybody's doing great. Um, so, you know, something I noticed that there was a, a repetitive motif in this week's Parsha and in the Haftorah. And I actually missed it when they were reading the Torah. And I only picked it up in the Haftorah when reading from the prophets after the Torah portion, because the verse starts out saying in Isaiah 51, it says that we will not, if we forget Hashem, we will be afraid all day. And I said, well, why did the sages choose a Haftorah talking about fear? And then when I went back into the Torah portion, I realized that really the portion was also about dealing with fear. So that's something I want to uh, talk about a little bit this week. You know, we see a few times in the portion, but primarily in the context of going out to war. There are a few categories in this past portion of people who can't go out to battle. Like if you planted a vineyard um, and didn't inaugurate it, or you built a house and you didn't move in yet, or you uh, betrothed a wife, but you didn't marry her yet and take her into your home. Those guys, you go home, you don't go out to the war. And that's pretty straightforward to understand, right? Because these are people with unfinished business. They're not the people you want to be in battle alongside because they're not putting their hearts in it. They're thinking of all the stuff that they're missing back at home. But then the Torah gives us one more category of somebody who can't go out to war. It says that anyone who is fearful and weak of heart should go home. It's pretty straightforward too. That makes sense, right? You know, I'm reading a book with the kids uh, called The Survivor's Club by Ben Sherwood. And it's about how people survived uh, kinds of like disasters, natural disasters, plane crashes, floods, and stuff like that. And the book says that in every disaster, there's 10, 80, 10, 10%, 80%, and 10%. The 80% are the majority. They just kind of freeze and freak out. That would probably be me. They go into shock and they just don't do anything. They're paralyzed. They don't know what to do. Just kind of following the crowd. Then you have the top 10%. Those are the people like Jeremy who don't lose their cool. They figure out what needs to be done. They're the ones running around into the fire, you know, saving people. They know what they're doing. And then you have the bottom 10%. They go into total meltdown. They don't just endanger themselves. They drive everyone else crazy because they're freaking out and yelling and distracting everyone from helping the situation. I'm sure you can see this with your kids. Like a couple of months ago, we were near a traffic accident next to a very um, unfriendly Arab neighborhood. And it was the only time in my life that I actually had my hand on my gun in a real situation. But the army was trying to manage everything. And there was a sort of mob scene unfolding. I was a little nervous, but it would be okay. The army was there. And we're right in the center of this. And the soldiers started being so overwhelmed by this mob that they started shooting machine guns into the air. And like our car was even scratched by the casings. And I had three kids in the back. It would be all right. But it was interesting to watch the kids. Like one was kind of talking himself through the situation. Okay, guys, stay calm. Everything's all right. And, you know, one of them was just sort of staring, not knowing what to do. And the other one was screaming her head off, even though I explained to her that we're not in any actual danger. So those bottom 10%, those are the ones that you do not want to have with you when you're in a war. So the verse in this portion is pretty sensible, right? Like if you're those guys that can't keep calm under stress, you should go home and don't make anybody else nervous, right? And so indeed, we see in the Talmud, in the interpretation of this verse, Rabbi Akiva says, who is the fearful and faint-hearted that the Torah is talking about sending home from the war? It's the people afraid of seeing battle, he says. Fair enough, that makes sense. But then the Talmud is really surprising here because Rabbi Yossi Haglili, Rabbi Yossi Haglili disagrees and he offers a different interpretation. He says the Torah is not talking here about people who are afraid of war. The Torah is talking about sending home soldiers who are afraid, get this guys, afraid of sin. 
well, that was new for me. My eyebrow kind of went up and I said, huh, aren't we supposed to be afraid of sin? Like, don't you want God fearing soldiers out in the battlefield that are afraid of sinning? And then I found a great explanation given by the Kutzker Rebbe. He explained this absolutely marvelously. He says on this verse and the explanation given by Rabbi Yossi, he said, well, really, you know, like, how can that be that if you're afraid of sin, you can't go to war? We want good guys at war, like, you know, in battling for Israel. And anyone would, you know, like be sent home if they were afraid of sin, then everybody would be sent home. He goes, no, 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 you're not understanding. He says the Torah is warning, according to this interpretation, against a person going out to battle. Listen carefully what he says. He says, who's afraid of their past sins, meaning someone who can't stop thinking about their past sins and become sad and depressed and incapable, actually, ironically, of ever really improving themselves in the future because they're so stuck in all of the mistakes that they've made and feeling bad about themselves. That person isn't allowed to go out to war because he doesn't have any internal strength left because of that fear of sin. And it really struck me and hit home because this week I got a massive dose of fear in the context of something that happened to me at my work. I made a mistake and I filed something to the court that was late and I wasn't sure it was going to be accepted, but it was extraordinarily important. And it was Thursday afternoon, meaning I wouldn't even know if it was accepted or not until after Shabbat. And I was struck with so much fear that someone's life would be seriously impacted by my error that I was just crushed under the weight of my guilt. And like, how was I going to get through that? I drew strength from an experience that I had about two years ago when I was in like a similar situation of feeling very guilty over a mistake that I had made and was weighing heavily on me. And I went to a friend who does breathing exercises that helps you get, she helps you get into like a very calm, meditative kind of prayer state. And I did these breathing exercises with her and she said, close your eyes. What do you feel like Hashem is trying to show you in this experience? And what came to me very clearly in that moment was these three words. Everything is from Hashem, that even mistakes are from Hashem. And what we're doing in this world is not doing life, but passing through life in order for our neshamas, our souls to experience what we need to experience. And so part of the experience that Hashem is sending me on is to experience this mistake. That's what needs to be. And that's something I needed to go through. And the only thing I can control is how I'm going to relate to that how I'm going to learn and be better or just sink and, you know, feel like I'm awful. I stink because of this mistake. So fast forward to this week, I really remembered that clarity that Hashem gave me at that time. And I drew strength from that. Long story short, instead of being paralyzed, I drew strength from that. And I got an idea of how to make things better. And I became action oriented and, you know, more clear thinking and Baruch Hashem, things really miraculously worked out. But going back to our verse and this dispute between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yossi Aglili, well, who's right? I think that Rabbi Akiva, when he says that the Torah is sending home people who are afraid of the war, is maybe bringing the plain meaning of the verse. Like when you're actually in a physical military war, the last guy you want around is the nervous soldier who's having a panic attack. But maybe Rabbi Yossi is going even deeper and giving us guidance for other types of wars because we are all, and when we read the, you know, Ardell's prayer list, we know that this is true for all of us. We are all fighting some kind of war in our life and probably more than one. It might be a battle to do the right thing when the people around us think we're weirdos. It might be a battle to support Israel when everyone around us hates Israel. It might be a battle to fortify ourselves and our children against harmful you know, cultural influences, a battle to support our families financially, a battle against illness, whatever it is, we are all in some kind of battle. So maybe the Torah is talking not only about physical military battles, but telling us who is not ready for their spiritual battle? Well, it's the one who's weighed down by the weight of their past mistakes. Because you would think that being, you know, 
being conscious of your past mistakes would just propel you forward. But in excess, the Torah is teaching us when you think about the past to the point that it gets out of control, it actually hinders our growth. And how will you have the strength to fight the next fight? Rev Cook, in his article on fear, said that all weakness, physical, moral, and mental come from fear that has gone over to the side of excess. I thought that was really profound. He says it will make a person unable to take action for their own redemption. Rabbi Cook says that you won't even lift a finger to save yourself when you are filled with fear that you're not going to get repentance for your past sins. So he said the outcome is this weakness and atrophy that leads you to paralysis. And I think it's so interesting because usually we associate sin with action, but Rav Cook says that we need to worry also about inaction that comes from being paralyzed with just feeling guilty about mistakes that we've made in the past and can't get fixed. And I got this really touching letter a few days ago from a member right here in our fellowship, maybe she's watching, struggling with precisely this, this issue of such deep regret about things that she did many years in the past, not from like a sinful place, but just from being kind of young and not really knowing. And she felt that no matter how much she's trying to do chuba, how much she's trying to repent, she doesn't feel forgiven. And she's such a kind, loving person, but this is weighing her down. And I said, well, maybe you don't need repentance, but to actually have mercy on yourself because you're such a compassionate person to other people. What about having some compassion on yourself? Like Hashem knows that you're not the same young foolish person who made those mistakes because look at the life you've built filled with goodness and righteousness. That speaks to who you are now. So if someone came to you and said, well, you know, I was once dumb and young and I didn't know better and I made this or that mistake, but I've lived an upright life since then. Wouldn't you give them a hug and show them compassion? So give yourself that hug. The Torah teaches us love your neighbor as yourself, meaning if you want to understand what it means to love a neighbor, you have to actually know how to have compassion on yourself too. Don't be more kind to others than you know how to be to yourself. And so I think that really connects beautifully to the time that we're in now to Elul, because it's not that we are taught to forget our past mistakes, but we're taught not to fear them, not to drown them, but to take a hard, painful look at them in Elul, to contemplate them, to look, to learn. And then comes Yom Kippur and we let go. Once a year, we take this time and we kind of go into it. We face it. We're courageous, but we don't fall into this fear of the past. We keep it in its proportions to not go into excess and allow Yom Kippur to come wash us clean and move on ready to fight our next battle. So with that, I give you guys a blessing to have a beautiful, amazing week and a profound, courageous month of Elul. Thank you, Tehila. That was awesome. Thank you. And so we're talking about fear. Thank you, Tehila. I'm a little bit fearful of Tehila. That's the way I feel. It's hard to be around someone that's just like constantly better than me at almost everything that's important. But that's, I guess, what we should be around. We should just be around people that are better than us, kind of like inching us toward being better. But um, the truth is that we, when I think about fear, and sometimes, you know, I, I do get fearful. There's so much in the world that you could just get overwhelmed with it sometimes. We don't really have control over anything in our life. That's the reality. That's what Hazal mean when they say everything is in the hands of heaven except our fear of heaven. All we have is what we see. All we have is what we fear. All we have is our thoughts. Our minds are really the only thing that we can control. And that's why this week's Torah portion that really kicks off Elul starts with the first verse that it starts with. What did it say in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18? It says like this, you shall set up judges and police for you in all your gates that the Lord your God is giving you for your tribes, that they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. 
Now, the Hebrew here adds that word for you, which is a little bit out of place. You should set up judges and police, lecha, shoftim veshotrim titen, lecha, to you. And so, of course, what's happening there, the mystic writings, the inner Torah is teaching us that we have gateways to our minds. We have gateways. The one thing that we can control, but there are gateways to it. We have our eyes. We have our ears. Like, what are we looking at? What are we listening to? What are we saying? It's like the information in the media that we allow into our mind actually programs our mind. And that's all that we have is our mind. That's all that we can control is what's inside us. And so if you want to watch a lot of the media, you know what's going to happen? Watch too much media without balance and you will walk around more fearful and anxious because that's going to be programming your mind. It's just that simple. But if you take the time, tune into the Land of Israel Fellowship, you'll feel a little bit more godly, a little bit more inspired, a little bit more aligned with the good, a little bit more aligned with the destiny of Israel. But there's something even more than that. Like what we see and what we hear is always immediately interpreted by our brain. And that's actually what our perception is. It's what we see interpreted by our brain. And then that's what we perceive. That's why there's like the tefillin, which like is right on the soft part of our head. That's like direct access to the brain between our eyes. It's like our eyes and our brains is what creates what we see in the world. And two people can see the same exact thing and have live in two totally different realities. And in that way, it's like our minds create the realities in which we live. And so last week, Tahil and I decided to take the kids to the beach at summer vacation. We said, we're going to do something really fun. So the Aru Goat Farm to the beach in Ashkelon, it's just a little bit more than an hour away. And we got in the car and just like that, boom, from the mountains in the desert of Judea, we're already splashing around in the Mediterranean Sea. And this time on this trip, we found ourselves with our little team. The big team, they were all doing big team things. You know, my 19-year-old, he's getting prepared to go into the army. My 16-year-old, he's doing his own thing. And now we just had Emuna, my 10-year-old, Noam, my 8-year-old, Chen, my 6-year-old. Uh, Tabitha, if you could put that up on the screen. I don't share this like beyond our fellowship, but just to kind of get a cute vision of our kids. That's right next to the beach. There's like a little skate park, so they have their little corky nets, and that's Emuna on the right, Noam in the middle, and Chen on the left. That's my little team. I have like two litters. That's the way I see it. I got the big litter and the little litter. And so now I was with my little litter. And so, um, you know, you're never supposed to play favorites. And Tehila taught me the answer that her mother told her, like, who do you love? More Abba. I love you all the same, but different. So, but there is a special difference with Emuna. Emuna is something that's just another level. She is something so unique in the world. <laughs> and she's just amazing. Can we just put a quick picture up of Emuna really quickly with her boogie board at the beach? Okay, that is Emuna. She is a gift from above. There, the word, it took a billion gazillion years for Hashem to eventually create something like Emuna in the world. That's how I feel. And where she asked me to hold her hand and take her out into the ocean so she could be in the waves and jump in the waves and go in the waves. And it was just me and Emuna. The littler kids were making a sandcastle. And me and Emuna went out into the water, holding her hand, jumping through the waves. And it was, I just had a moment because the sea is so vast and so separate. And I'm just, I don't know, I guess I turn towards the spiritual sometimes. But I just had this sense that like 20 years from now, I would give anything to be back at this exact age in my current health at this exact moment. Jeremy, hold on to this right now. 
enjoy it. Let it go in. And when I so cute, soon she's going to be on the big team. She's still on the little team now. Enjoy these things. Enjoy the little things in life because one day I'm going to realize that these little things, they are the big things. And I don't know why my mind went to this, but then I started thinking, okay, it's the end of my life now. And it's right now, it's, I have this last moment where my, my life is flashing before my eyes. And what would I want to experience one more time before I leave this world? And I know that the answer is, I would just want more time with the people that I love the most. I want more time and I want to give more hugs. That's what I felt. <laughs> and so, okay, Elul is now. This is the time of the year. And that's come home. Come home to that truth that we sometimes forget just in the rustle and bustle of life. Now start thinking about life and the year that's coming ahead and start creating the vision and the plan for how to make those moments more and more in our life. To create a vision for this year where we put the first things first. And now is really the time to get our values in line. And then once our values are really in line and we have our priorities set, most decisions are made for us because we know what's most important. We remind ourselves, we really try to envision how we want to be this year and with who we want to spend our time. And that's what the Torah is doing. That's what the Torah is teaching us, just to build the character, to follow through with what we know is the right way to be in the world. And let me tell you, I read a study that just came out and it came out that the Bible is taught in almost no schools anymore in the United States. Almost no high schools, almost no colleges, almost no university. There's almost no one studying the Bible in the institutions, the educational institutions in the United States anymore. And I'm like, oi, va voi. What are we going to do with that? I mean, look at all the people that believe in God and look at the people that don't in American society. And look at those societies and look at San Francisco and see what's happening to that city. Look at the societies that don't have God. Look at the families that have God in their life and look at the families that don't. That's what King David means when he writes in Psalm 85, verse 11. The truth grows from the earth and righteousness shines down from heaven. The truth grows from the earth it's not something you need to believe in. It's not something that's like out there. It's like, no, the truth emerges from reality. In this world was created for us to flourish. And believers, they flourish. When people try to live without faith, they start to wither away. They start to get filled with angst and fear. And they start walking around. They don't know what to say to themselves. What do they believe? They don't know what to believe. But listen, every atheist as the plane is about to crash, they're all praying to God. And so what is that? It's like, there's just no integrity there. They become disintegrated in this world, just so filled with so many lies and confusions. But the truth, the truth emerges, grows from the earth. Just believe and you flourish. In my mind, I mean, people can seek God, of course, but why would you choose to believe something that makes you weak? I refuse to believe anything that inherently makes me a weaker version of who I can be. And reality is structured in a way that naturally things grow and things flourish. And the most powerful things survive. And what is that? The strongest 
thrive. And that's what the Torah study is so important. Just like lifting weights or building muscles, you learn Torah, it's building your spirit and you become stronger in your spirit. And someone in the fellowship, you know, just right around Elul, we're just learning about becoming stronger and learning Torah. And they were in a Bible study and it was a woman's Bible study. And they sent me this story that I just thought was so touching. And they came across the book of Malachi. And I've always loved this verse and this idea. And it's Malachi chapter three, verse three. And here's what it says. And he, Hashem, shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And so she writes me like this. The idea puzzled the women. And they wonder what that statement meant about the character and the nature of Hashem. One of the women offered to find out about the process of refining silver and get back to the group at their next Bible study. So that woman called up a silversmith and made an appointment to watch him at work. And she didn't mention anything about the reason for her interest beyond her curiosity in the process of refining silver. And as she watched the silversmith, he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, you need to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames are the hottest to burn away all the impurities. And then the woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot. And then she thought again about the verse that he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time as the silver was being refined. The man answered yes and explained that not only he had to sit there holding the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. If the silver was left for even one moment too long in the flames, the silver would be damaged. Thinking about that, the tests of life that we go through, the tests of life that take us to the very edge of our abilities, never a moment too long. The woman was silenced for a moment, and then she asked the silversmith, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? He smiled at her and said, oh, that's easy. When I see my image in the silver. And if today you're feeling the heart of this world's fire, just remember that God has his eye on you and kept heart. And so I want to say something about that. First of all, I love that. But more than that, until the silversmith sees his image in the silver, all the trials, all the goals that we want to set for the new year, all of the challenges we're taking on, and all of the challenges that are just thrust upon us, all of them ultimately are to shine God's image through us into the world. In a world of choice, in a world of evil and temptation and corruption, when we go through the fires of truth and we become refined like silver, we start to shine like nobility and character and strength and courage and love and honor and compassion in the fires of the world, we become refined. The impurities are burned away. And then what's left is the reflection of the great silversmith shining back his reflection into the world. And so that should be our aim in Elul, to allow ourselves to become vessels, to shine his light through us in the world. And may we all be blessed to know that the fires that we're going through are taking away our impurities, that are purifying us and making us into who Hashem created us to be, to shine a new light as we renew ourselves this Elul and this season. And so, fellowship, may you all be blessed with the light of Hashem 
May you shine it to all of your loved ones around you. May we all live as an example of his ways in the world. And as we ascend toward him, may we lift everyone around us up. Lift them up with us. Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha. Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichoneka. Isa Adonai panav elecha v'yasem lecha shalom. Shalom fellowship. We'll see you again next week. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.